Okay, if you've got a Bible on you, why don't you grab it now? Uh, if not, the words will appear behind me on the screen. We're going to be reading today from Luke chapter 11, uh, verses 1 through 13. So that's Luke 11, 1 to 13, and this is God's Word. One day Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. He said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread, forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us, and lead us not into temptation. Then Jesus said to them, suppose you have a friend, and you go to him at midnight and say, friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I have no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside answers, don't bother me. The door is already locked and my children and I are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And we thank God for his word as it still speaks to us today. So we're into the seventh week in a series uh, that really has been exploring the parables of Jesus. And it's been seven weeks trying uh, to see the world through his eyes as he explained in story about what the kingdom of heaven looks like and how it works. And as we've went along the way, we've engaged with things like love and relationships, hope and expectation. And last week, Lucy was unpacking what forgiveness looks like, or we can thank her for the term five-giveness that was used last week. It will never be forgotten or forgiven. Anyway, um, we've been walking through the kind of aspects that Jesus throws up in parables, and Jesus is trying to teach us about the kingdom in story. He's choosing to teach us about the thing that Jesus talks about more than anything else, and he chooses to do so through the medium of story. And I wonder as we start today, if I asked you this question, which will provoke the rest of what we walk through today, I wonder if I asked you how you would describe your relationship with God, what would you say? How would you describe your relationship with God? What kind of relationship do you have? Distant, non-existent, just come to Him for help, close, intimate, way out there or way close here? How would you describe your relationship with God? It would have been my mum's birthday last week. And so all of us uh, kids got together with my dad and someone had the bright idea that kind of in memory of her birthday, we were going to let off a Chinese lantern on what was perhaps the windiest and wettest day of the entire year, right? So epic feel. There were probably more swear words used than I would care to repeat as we tried to get this thing up as like the wind was like 50 mile an hour and it was lashing with rain. It did not 
work, right? So as it happened, we ended up kind of huddling under this like little shelter uh, down at Lockshore. And we end, it was actually really sweet in the end because we ended up uh, just kind of recounting stories about my mom, right? So we, we were laughing, crying, remembering all sorts of things from our childhood right through to, to more recently things that she said. And I realized as we chatted that night that all of us had not just had someone who was our mother, but all of us had had someone who was our friend. Like I realized as we chatted that each of us, each of us four kids, even dad, had had this deep, honest, individual friendship with our mom. She knew each of us differently. She referred to each of us differently. We each had a relationship with her that was not just a mother, it was also a friend. Similarly, too, we've been spending lots of time uh, over the last little while with my daughter, Elle, and with her asking the big, and I mean big, questions of life, right? She's been talking about marriage, right? Elle is coming for, okay? So you can imagine just how uncomfortable I am as she begins to talk about marriage, right? Uh, and uh, the other day she said this, Daddy, I know that I can't get married until I'm, a, when I, until I'm a big girl, right? And we're like, yes, until you're like 57 years old, right? We're not talking about this now, right? But Daddy, I know I can't get married until I'm a big girl, but when I grow up, I know who I'm going to marry, right? So she says this, right? So this is what she says, right? And I'm like, who is this man? Point him out to me. I'll kill him now, right? It better not be Lorenzo from across the street, Okay. I'm like, we're not having that. In secret, I think she's going to say Jamie Nish, right? Because she's got some weird crush on Jamie Nish. She equally has some weird crush on uh, Johnny the Gorilla from the movie Sing, right? Maybe you can see comparisons between Johnny and Jamie. But anyway, right? That's who I think she's going to say, right? And I'm ready to say, you are not marrying Jamie Nish, right? And I'm like, who is this man, okay? And she says, Daddy, when I grow up to be a big girl... I'm going to marry you, Daddy, right? That's what she says. I'm going to marry you. Now, at this point, okay, I'm like, no, you can't marry your dad, right? You marry someone who's a really special friend, right? So you start trying to say things like that, and she goes, but Daddy, you are my special friend. And at this point, so now I'm getting into legal. It's illegal, L, right? It's illegal. You can't do it. It's illegal, right? I'm married to your mom. That's how you came into the world, though I really, really don't want to talk about that, right? You can't do it, okay? You can't marry your dad, right? And she's devastated, right? And she's then she's on the sofa and she's all upset now and she's like, but dad, who is going to marry me? I don't have anyone, right? So now she's totally devastated and upset and all of that sort of thing. But it got me thinking, okay? It got me thinking, how does she see me? Right? I'm her dad. She knows that I'm her dad. But also, I am one of her best friends. We talk to her often about our little household as the team, right? And we say, like, we're the team. Do you like being in the team? She's like, yeah, I love being in the team. We're the best team, Dad. And she'll talk about it like that, right? But I think about it often now. How does she see me? Who am I to her? Writing in the Irish Times, one psychotherapist wrote this advice. It's natural for parents to want to be everything for their child, but being their friend is crossing the line. And I say that today because in today's passage, Jesus' picture of the kingdom is a kingdom where we relate to God, not just as father, but as friend, right? This is what it says. He's talking in a parable. He's trying to teach us about the kingdom and teach us about who God is. And he says this, suppose you have a friend and you go to him at midnight and you say, friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine is on a journey, has come to me and I have no food to offer him. 
It's blurring the lines between how we see God our Father, right? Because he begins to introduce it as the idea of friend. Commentating on this passage, N.T. Wright reflects on his own relationship with his kids and says this, I wonder where fatherhood ends and where friendship begins. And the parable we're reading today is known as the parable of the friend at midnight, right? That catchy title. And it's easy to see how we read, right? That we have the lines blurred between seeing God as father and between seeing God as friend. And the reality is that as followers of Jesus, it's often really hard to imagine the God that we pray to, isn't it? Like we pray, I know that lots of people pray. All the stats that are generally carried out in kind of wider culture suggest that everybody or a high percentage of people pray at some point in their lives. But here's the thing. Even as Christians, it's sometimes very difficult to imagine just who we are praying to. Like it's hard to imagine how he's going to take things, isn't it? Hard to imagine what he'll think if we say this or we say that. And so one of the easier ways that we find ourselves approaching God is to think of him as like way out there, right? Like the cosmic version. It's somehow more comfortable to think, well, I'll just throw a little prayer up because he's like somewhere out there, all powerful, all seeing, everywhere, right? I can just throw it out there. He's not that close, right? So I can just throw it out to him. And so we end up praying prayers that sounds like the sorts of things that we say at a royal ceremony, right? Sorts of language that we use whenever we pray. And yet one of the great privileges in life is to listen to a child pray. Why do I say that? I say that because they say things as they are. They talk to God like he's there. They talk to God like he's a father. Children talk to God like he's a friend. It's hard to imagine God, the one that we pray to. And yet today's passage is really all about prayer. Prayer. Right? at the heart, right at the center of what it means to express ourselves to God as a church and as individuals. And yet for most of us, a lot of the time, if we're honest, it's a struggle, isn't it? Prayer is a struggle. We find it easier to Instagram than we do to pray. We find it easier to text than we do to pray. Lots of us even find it easier to read the Bible than we do to pray, like to really pray. And so Jesus talking about prayer today tells us that the kingdom is like a friend at midnight. And this prayer, this parable is really all about two things today. The first is seeking and the second is giving. The parable is really about seeking and it's about giving. The first of those is that the parable is about seeking. This is what it says in verses 1 to 4. One day Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread, forgive us our sins. For we also forgive everyone who sins against us and lead us not into temptation. This is the Lord's Prayer, right? That's how we know it, except it's not the full version, right? You'll find that in Matthew 6. It's a slightly different version in Luke's gospel. And Jesus shares this with his followers because they want to know how to pray, right? That's the first question. Teach us how to pray, as John taught his disciples how to pray. And as you read through Luke's gospel, okay, just taking Luke's, not looking at um, either any of the other gospel accounts. As you read through Luke's gospel, you realize that by the time we arrive here in Luke 11, this is already the sixth reference to Jesus praying. 
By the time we get here, Luke's gospel alone has already accounted for Jesus in prayer six times. The disciples have been with Jesus. They've been watching him do what he does, perform and speak all of the incredible things that he's been doing. And they've been in the most privileged position of being close to him to see it, right? They've seen what kind of person he is. They know who he is, even more importantly. And they figure that prayer has definitely got something to do with it. You see, they see him. They really see him. And they figure that prayer has something to do with it. They're just desperate to know the secret because they know that prayer is the pattern and it's a big part of Jesus' life. Just being around him, they knew how important prayer was. Growing up in a month, I came to realize throughout my life just how important the preaching of God's word was to my dad, right? Firstly, I could say that I knew it was important because of the books, right? The sheer volume of books that came through the front door of the house. Thousands of them, books piled on top of books, okay? Apparently, I'm going to inherit them all whenever he pops his claws. Thanks for that, Dad. Um, I have no idea where they're going to go, right? Maybe they make good fuel for the fire. Who knows? Anyway, thousands of books, okay? I mean, when I say that about a week of his month-long holiday every summer was taken up just to tidying the books, which through the year were strewn all over his study, right? First was the books. Second was his train of thought. You knew that dad through the week was thinking about what he was going to say on a Sunday. Like he would kind of zone out. You're eating dinner and you're like, oh, there he goes. Or he's watching a movie and you hear, you know, a quote in the movie and you think, uh, he's just clocked that. That's going to appear in the line on, uh, in, the, in the sermon on Sunday morning. But finally, and probably mostly, I knew how important it was to him because of the rhythm. Every Saturday night, For as long as I have been alive, I know that my dad will, at some point on a Saturday night, retreat to the study to write the sermon that he'll deliver on the Sunday. He's a West Ham fan. Even if West Ham win and it's on match of the day, he's still retreating to the the study to prepare the sermon. It is the pattern of his life. And so it was with Jesus. Prayer was the pattern of his life. He was constantly spending time with prayer. I mean, if if you look at his life, okay, you'll see that the constant movement of Jesus' life is away from the big crowd. Unlike kind of most of us that lead churches where the movement of our life is towards the big crowd, Jesus is constantly trying to get away to spend time with the Father in prayer. It was the pattern of his life. And one of the things that amazes me about this passage is that it is the only time in all of the Gospels that somebody asked Jesus to teach them how to do something. How incredible is that? You're listening to the only time in all of the Gospels that somebody asked Jesus to teach them how to do anything. And what is it? Prayer. Prayer. I mean, they are with him all the time. They are seeing him do incredible things, all of the incredible things that follow Jesus' life, and yet the only time they ask him how to do something is prayer. They evidently think they need greater help with prayer than with preaching, than prayer than with healing, than prayer than with raising people from the dead, than with prophecy, or than with leading a movement. It's prayer they want the help with, and they're the people who would recognize the pattern. 
If you want a Presbyterian approach to this passage, okay, Jesus' response is made up of three things, a pattern, a parable, and a promise. All right, there you go. Write those down. We've dealt with the Presbyterian side of today's sermon, right? That's what it would be about. But the reality is they saw his life. And this is the one time they ask him how to do something. And the reality is that the response that Jesus makes is practical. It's not theory. He's not trying to teach them the theory of prayer. He's trying to teach them how to do it. And the pattern that he gives them to pray, right, we know is the Lord's Prayer, okay? And the first thing to say about that is that just as, as so often we do as we gather together, we pray it, right? Jesus meant for his followers to pray it as he said it. He meant for it to be prayed verbatim, right? The, the language that's used at the start suggests that, that he meant us to repeat it as he said it, okay? But yet he meant more than that too. He meant for us to explore the depths of what this pattern meant. You see, there's always a danger when you hand somebody something like this, right? A template. There's always a danger that the template becomes something that you just roll off your tongue, not really ever thinking about what it actually means. The first part of it is who we're praying to. He said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. First, right? We're praying to a father. We're praying to father. And it comes from the word Abba, which lots of us already know, right? It's more akin to dad. It's an intimate term. It's a personal term, right? It's it's not just father, like way out there, distant, never knew him. It's dad. In other words, the first thing we learn about our seeking is that we're talking to our father, Growing up in the manse, as I said, I I, I came to realize throughout the years that I have shared my dad throughout my life with hundreds, if not thousands of people. The reality is a pastor will share his life with hundreds, if not thousands of people throughout his life. As his kids, we knew that. We knew we weren't the only priority in his life. We knew these other people were. So birthday parties got interrupted for funerals. Pastoral things came up. People would call in the house whenever it didn't suit. And yet they were a priority in his life. Joy and I are talking often about how we're realizing that how El and Levi are going to have to learn to do exactly the same thing with us. And yet... What we're invited into with God is more than that. You see, because of Jesus, the Father becomes our dad. What I mean is that even though I knew throughout my life that hundreds of people would share my dad with me, there was only the four of us kids who actually got the fullest expression of dad, who got deepest intimacy who got deepest affection, who got deepest sharing, who got deepest influence. That's what it means to call somebody dad. And that's what we're invited into with God. Because of Jesus, the Father becomes our dad, becomes the source of deepest affection, deepest sharing, deepest influence. We're invited to pray next, hallowed be your name. Dad, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. And to the world of Jesus' time, okay, your name was deeply significant in all sorts of ways, right? It was the sum of your attributes. Your name was the sum of all that you were, really. And so you call me David, for example, and that doesn't mean anything other than your name is David. Nobody thinks any more than that very often about people's names, right? It doesn't mean anything to you other than to your mom or your dad normally, but not to their culture. You see, all of you was wrapped up in a name. 
Name meant way more than just something nice, right? Or some other name that you liked whenever you called somebody it, right? It meant way more than that. All of who you are was wrapped up in your name. And to pray, hallowed be your name, is essentially worship. It's saying aloud what you think about who God is and praying for others, the whole world, to see God as holy, to see God like we do, and to act in light of who you now know he is. So we pray to not just our father, but our dad. We pray, hallowed be your name. And then we ask him to provide for us and to meet us where we really are. And we'll get to that later on in today's service, right? But the incredible thing about this prayer, right, is that we think of it as the Lord's Prayer, but really it's not just the Lord's Prayer. It's the prayer of the way. What do I mean when I say that? Well, this is what I mean, right? We start the prayer with, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, okay? And essentially, that's what chapter 10 of Luke has been all about. It's been about Jesus' way. And then as we pray to the God who meets our needs, in lots of ways, that's what the rest of chapter 11 is all about. So this isn't just a series of connected statements and requests, right? It's way more than that. It's the prayer for people who are trying to follow Jesus in his kingdom way. This is what N.T. Wright has to say. Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem to act on behalf of God's name, which had been dragged in the mud as his people had turned away from him in rebellion. He was on the way to accomplish the exodus in which the long-awaited kingdom of God would become a reality. He had provided bread for the journey, and the breaking of bread was to become the sign of his presence in the church and the bond between his followers. He was already offering forgiveness and would accomplish it completely in his death. And he was already demanding from his followers that they imitate the graciousness of their God in forgiving their enemies, let alone each other. And as we have already seen, and we'll shortly see in more detail, he was waging war against the powers of evil, a war that would reach its decisive battle on Calvary. This is a prayer which grows out of the mission of Jesus himself. See, this is, a, this is the prayer of the way. In other words, the prayer of the way flows from Jesus himself, right? It flows from who he is. The prayer of the way flows from the one who is the way. Who he is, who he'd already evidenced himself to be, what he came for. That's where this prayer, this pattern flows from. And maybe this morning, as we ask ourselves how we view God, how, how we would term our relationship with God. Maybe this morning that's the problem when it comes to our prayer. Maybe the problem is that they too, too often flow from who we are. If the Lord's prayer is the expression of prayer which flows from who he is, what if our prayers too often flow from the expression of who we are? Not from who we say we are, but from who we really are. What do our prayers say about our way? Too busy, too focused on our security, too fearful, too focused on all we want, too occupied with our world as we see it. What do our prayers say about us? This is the prayer of the way. And the call on our lives is not about all the things we can do for God. It's about how we bring all of our lives under him, his way. And this prayer is a start. The first thing we learn, right, is that prayer is about seeking. And the second thing we learn is that it's about giving, right? 
It's about seeking and it's about giving. This is what it says in verses 5 to 13. Then Jesus said to them, suppose you have a friend and you go to him at midnight and say, friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me and I have no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside answers, don't bother me. The door is already locked and my children and I are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. Everyone who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? So just first of all, right, this parable, okay? The one that we're talking about that's called the friend at midnight. In many ways, it's a strange little parable, right? When you read it, you're kind of like, well, it's kind of an odd uh, little thing for Jesus to say. And it's hard, okay, is this, is this culture of hospitality again, okay? We've been kind of leaning on that through the parables as we went through because lots of them lean on what was a critically important culture of hospitality in their world, right? So in the world of that time, people were honor-bound to provide hospitality to others, friend or stranger. It didn't matter, okay? And in the nighttime, doors were shut, all right? And in the daytime, they remained open all of the time so people just could come and go through your front door. And the thing is that arriving at midnight might seem a bit strange as you read this morning, right? You're probably listening going, well, like, this dude's rocked up at midnight. Of course he's in bed. I mean, it's perfectly normal to say, no way, like, I'm asleep, mate, go away, right? You probably think that on first reading. But the thing is that arriving at midnight wasn't that strange because in that culture, people often traveled in the cool of the evening. They would set off as it got dark. So it was cooler then than it was to try and travel through kind of the heart of the day. So they traveled at nighttime. So therefore, arriving later on at night wasn't that strange at all. And on top of it, he describes it as a friend, right? So it's not just a stranger showing up at midnight. It's a friend. In other words, he was probably expecting the friend to have traveled. And the bread, okay, just on bread. Bread was the normal hospitality offering as well. Apparently in that time, three small bread loaves was kind of the normal measure of what people ate. And within a village, okay, bread had to be baked fresh every day. Obviously, that meant that everybody didn't bake their bread fresh every day. But in the idea of a village where people had hospitality with one another, they shared. But what would have become known is the place or the people who had the bread each day. In other words, when you needed it, they knew who had it. And so this friend knows that this householder has bread. And then we have the picture of what's going inside, right? Whenever the householder says, look, I can't get up, my kids are in bed, right? It wouldn't be like now where the kids are in some other room and they're downstairs watching telly, right? That's not what's going on. They all shared one large sleeping space, probably made up of hay and some sort of fleece or material. They shared one large sleeping area together. So in other words, if the father or or the head of the household gets up, it means everyone's getting up. Everyone is now awake. And so often when we look at the passage, right, as it's preached, it's all about persistence, right? Normally, if you've ever heard this passage preached on, you've read something on it, it's talked about as persistence. 
It's this verse, I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. It's that word, those words, shameless audacity, right? It actually comes from, here's your word for the day, right? Importunity, right? Not opportunity, importunity. I dare you to slip that into a conversation next week, just cash, you know? Um, well, you know, my importunity meant that I eventually got what I wanted, right? What it means is shameless audacity, as they translate it. Uh, or the, the word chutzpah would have been the word that would have kind of been translated in that day. It's probably best described in plain English as brass ones, right? That's what it actually means. In other words, because you had the brass ones to persist at the door, somebody eventually answered, right? That's what it is, right? So therefore, the kind of thing that people would say about this passage is that when it comes to God, just keep asking and asking and asking and asking, and eventually your brass ones will mean that God will give you what you want, right? That's how very often this one's spoken of. But here's the problem. That's not who God is, is it? That's not who he is. You see, this parable is all about contrast, not comparison. The parable is all about contrast and not comparison. Why do I say that? Well, because if we're meant to be represented by the one at the door, shamelessly knocking and knocking, just not giving up until we get what we want, then in the parable, who's God? God's the lazy one who doesn't get up. God's the lazy one who says, I'm bad. And God's the lazy one who eventually says, oh, all right, and gives in because the person won't go away. And that's not who God is. Several of the Jewish interpreters of this passage let us know what's really going on. See, here's what's happening in this passage. See, hospitality was so central to the life in that world that one commentator writes this. Hospitality was considered a sacred duty in the Jewish community, even when the visitor was a stranger. That's important, right? Because to the original listener, when Jesus asked at the start, suppose you have a friend, right? They knew that that was a form of a rhetorical tool, right? They knew that it, he, was, he was about to make a statement for which the reaction that they were expected to have was an immediate negative response, right? It's like I'll say to Elle often, you know, when she's eating her breakfast, like I'll say to her, you know, well, I just pour that cereal over your head and she'll go, no. And that's what it was meant to do. Suppose you have a friend who behaves like this. It was meant for the crowd to go, no. Of course I can't imagine it. That person would be a terrible host. He made the person stand outside and ask and ask and ask and ask and ask until eventually he gave in. No, of course I don't have a friend like that. So then Jesus continues. So I say to you, ask, just ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, just seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. This is him. This is who he is. This is the contrast between the statement that makes you go, no, that's not who he is. This is who he is. This isn't about persistence. This is about a God who answers, a God who gives, not out of our persistence, but out of who he is. We grew up in the era of the Super Nintendo followed by the N64, and then the PlayStation, and then eventually the Xbox, right? Some of you are going like, what the heck is a Super Nintendo, right? Sorry if it's before your time. It was the greatest thing that ever happened at the time, right? The Super Nintendo was incredible. 
And the other thing that went along with that period of time was it was like the golden era of fighter games, right? So you had like Street Fighter, Street Fighter 2 Turbo, Mortal Kombat, Tekken, you know, all of those sorts of games, right? It was like the golden era of fighting games. Problem was, we were never allowed them, right? It was just like a big no, okay? My mom would do that really annoying thing, which would be like, no, David, you're not having that because it makes you violent. It makes you very angry, right? David, people are saying that people that play those games do very violent things, like they hurt people. And I see you how you play that game, and you and your brother get into a fight afterwards, and you're not allowed to have one of those games, right? And all that did when you were a child, right? Was it riled you up, didn't you? You were like, no. And then even if you were playing other games, like, you know, driving games or football, she would come up and be, right, that's an R. You need to turn that off. And then you would get rage, and she'd go, you see? It makes you angry, right? That's what she did all the time. We were never allowed fighting games. It probably did make us violent. Anyway, we knew it didn't matter how many times we asked. It didn't matter how much we would like show her the magazine. Look, mom, look how cool this is. It didn't matter how many times we would kind of parade. It didn't matter whatever bargains we tried to do with her. Like, what if I saved half, right? It didn't matter how many times. It didn't matter how persistent we were. We weren't going to get it. And yet, on the other side of the coin, when it was something that we needed, we didn't even need persistence. The persistence actually very often was on their side. Like when I was age 10, all I wanted was a pair of these beauties. Look at these. Come on, right? Puma Kings, right? Worn casually with your like bootcut wranglers and a Joe Bloggs jumper, right? The coolest thing ever, Puma Kings, whenever I was like 10. They are the most hideous shoes I think I've ever seen. But anyway, when I was 10, all I wanted was a pair of these. And I needed new trainers, so I was like, Dad, can I get Puma Kings, right? You're watching Alan Shearer in the Premier League on a Saturday, banging them in, and then you're like, I'm going to do the same. So I'm looking for Puma Kings. The problem was they were like sold out everywhere. But I asked my dad, and he was like, yep, no problem, son. We'll go and get you the Puma Kings. I know you've wanted them. Your trainers are knackered. We'll go and get you the trainers. And I remember visibly like a full Saturday afternoon going to every single sports shop in the greater Belfast area to try and track down a pair of Puma Kings, which we eventually got. And that's the thing about prayer, right? We have got to realize as we approach our Father in heaven, that when it comes to our lives and when it comes to the deep needs of who we are, prayer is an exercise in mutual interest. It is not about our wrangling. It is not about our persisting, persisting, persisting until we eventually strong arm God round into what we want. It's not about the sense of trying to drag God into who we are and what we want to do. It's not about convincing him or not about trying to just, you know, eventually just tire him out so that he'll give us what we want. It is a mutual interest. God just doesn't cave to your continued asking. He wants to because he's our father. Because, because he doesn't just give in to every want and whim that we have. And so we get that little section in the passage about scorpions and snakes, right? Which seems a bit ridiculous. You're kind of, of course, like an egg is nothing like a scorpion. A fish is nothing like a snake. Except, 
in that culture, sometimes they were. Did you know, for example, there was a form of scorpion that was common in that part of the world that would burrow its way into eggs, eat whatever was in the egg, and then live inside it, right? So you could give somebody an egg. Actually, it was a scorpion. There are also fish that really do look like snakes in that part of the world. In other words, though it seems obvious to us, Father had to pay attention with what he gave to his kids. If he was going to give them what they needed, the father had to pay attention. You couldn't just walk out, pick up eggs, just give them to him. There you go, right? Had to be careful with what he gave them. And so it is with us. Sometimes we don't get what we want. Even when we think it would be good, even when we feel like it's a good idea, even when we feel like it's for us, sometimes we don't get what we want. Because it's not for us. Central turned four uh, a couple of weeks ago. We know that that passed without birthday cake. I deeply apologize. If you'd seen our first year's birthday cake, you would all be very, very jealous. There's an awful lot more of you here now than there was then, right? But we just turned four uh, a couple of weeks ago. You all need to hold tight for our fifth, right? We're going big. And when I think back, right, when I think back over those last four years and the number of opportunities, the number of moments, the number of conversations that happened along the way, partnerships, buildings, all sorts of stuff, things that we thought we wanted, things that at times we thought were going to be a good idea. And yet God had other ideas. We never saw this version that you're a part of here today at the start. We could only see other versions as we went along. Some of those things were for us, some of them were not. But we sought the Lord, we asked, all the way along. And I have to believe that this version is better, way better than any idea we ever had. Though Linda Hetherington still believes that someone's going to give us the black box someday, because that was the apple of our eye when we planted the church, right? I have to believe that this version is better, because it has so wholeheartedly come about his way. Actually, we went and asked for a different building And the Presbyterian Church engaged us in a conversation about this one. This didn't happen because we got our way. This has happened this way because we feel like we've just ended up falling in to his way. This is it, right? God meets our seeking with his giving. He's not a vending machine. He doesn't just cave if we ask enough. The message of this parable is not just ask and ask and ask. Just never give up and God will eventually give in. That's not what the parable says because that's not who he is. He is our father. He is dad. He is the one of deepest intimacy, deepest affection, deepest interest and deepest influence in our lives. And when we pray, we are taking part in a mutual exercise. Not just me trying to persuade him but us trying to understand and lean into his best for our lives. This is what he says. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, the door will be opened. And this is it, right? 
This is another one of these passages. As we've been going along through the parables, we've seen time and time again that as Jesus speaks on the kingdom, uh, that he's trying to say to us again and again and again, imagine a world like this. And he's doing it again. When it comes to prayer, Jesus is saying, imagine a world like this. Imagine a world where we ask and seek not out of what we want or what we see or what feels good. But out of what Jesus is doing, Jesus' way, and our lives in the world as Jesus sees it. Imagine that God the Father is hearing us as we speak. Imagine that he is God. He is Dad. He's that close, and he wants to be that close. Imagine that that's who you're praying to this morning. Imagine that the Holy Spirit is acting to meet our needs and the cries of the needs of this world. Imagine for a moment again that the rumors we've heard about God are true. Imagine once more, as C.S. Lewis wrote, that this world is a great sculptor's shop. We are the statues. And there's this rumor going around the shop that someday some of us are going to come to life. Just imagine a world like this.